0: Hi, everyone, and thanks for giving us your time today. I'm Ian Hamilton, and in case you're new here, I'm recording this from our studio in virtual reality. I'm wearing Quest 2 with hand tracking and meta avatars, and I'm joined by my co-host, David Heaney. He lives on the other side of the Atlantic, and we've never met in the physical world, but we come together each week to talk about the latest developments shaping the next generation of personal computing. We can see live comments from YouTube when we record this at 10 a.m., Pacific on Tuesdays. And VR download is available for listening on every major podcast platform. Let's get into it, Haney. What do we have today?
1: We're going to talk about the fact that Valve Index replacement parts are now sold, including some parts you may not have expected Valve to sell through iFixIt. We're going to talk about Quest 2's new experimental room setup feature that lets you bring your wall and furniture into VR. We'll talk about a little tidbit from display week where we kind of learned that Quest 2's display resolution per eye is actually slightly lower than what Meta advertised. We'll talk about the fact that Zero Latency has started to replace some of their backpack PCs at their locations with standalone headsets and what that means for the future. We'll talk about Qualcomm's XR2 reference design for AR glasses. And finally, we'll talk about the big reports that came out this week and last week from Bloomberg and the information that details some of the inner turmoil behind Apple's rumored upcoming Mixed Reality headset.
0: Wow, yeah, it's a big week. Let's get right into that first news. Replacement parts for the Valve Index headset are officially sold by iFixit. Now we've got prices for all those things. And in particular here, the display panels, this one right here, Heaney, are we going to see some modding going on with this? Yeah, that is the first thing we definitely expected it about. So,
1: you know, iFixit is now selling replacement parts, including speakers, knobs, straps. But one of the interesting things here is this kind of eye tube assembly, as they call it, which is for each eye. The lens and display already kind of merged together and you don't have to do that yourself with the display cable and this means that if your lens breaks or your display breaks or say there's even just like a lot of dead pixels on your one of your display panels you can actually open it up and follow iFixit's very detailed and easy to follow guides and fix it yourself and that's available for 135 dollars per eye which includes those tools that you can see there and yeah, it does open up that interesting question. Given that this is kind of a, a ready to go module, could we see hackers and modders in the hardware space use this to build their own DIY headsets? Because obviously one of the most difficult things if you're going to build a DIY headset would be kind of matching a lens and a panel in a suitable way and making sure that you have the kind of t- correct lens distortion uh, p- parameters. But the, if you already can take that out from SteamVR and you know that it's the same for the index, there's some quite interesting possibilities here. But I think the, the main story here is that this really extends the useful life of the index for its owners. And it means that when something breaks in the past, you know, I've, I've read from some of our readers telling me that if they were slightly out of their warranty, Valve would just say, buy a new headset, even if it was just one of these little parts that were broken. So that's this is obviously Valve's response to that problem in saying, you know, instead of us creating this infrastructure that you send in your headset and will repair it, which obviously is quite capital intensive and there's a lot of issues involved there. They're going to leave it to the users, which you know, people who are buying the index in general are probably a lot more technically minded than your average technology consumer. So it does seem like a, a fairly appropriate solution.
0: Yeah, the device itself was fairly focused towards that modder community. It has a USB port right on the front of the device that could be used for a variety of different functions. And yeah, this has been a long time coming. I think that's the takeaway. Of course, the headset kind of shipped in 2019 and people have been wishing for uh, simpler replacement options this whole time since then, right?
1: Yeah, the the index is almost three years old now, which is very strange to think. And Valve only actually started selling uh, individual controllers and the cable late last year, sorry, mid last year. So two years into the cycle. So for those first two years, if you had one of your controllers break, you would have to buy the pair. Or if you had the cable break, in many cases, you know, from emails I saw from our readers from customer support, they were told to buy an entirely new headset. So I really hope that when Valve comes to launch its next headset, which is something we've talked about before in this show, something that does seem like it's going to happen in the future, though perhaps not anytime soon, that they have this kind of infrastructure from the start. Because if you're going to sell a product like this that is at a premium price, You need to make sure you either have a repair system or the parts available for the customer to repair it themselves. And this was an issue we saw with the original Rift, where it used its proprietary cable. And for quite a while, Facebook did not sell that cable separately. And it was the same issue where you break it out of warranty and they would just tell you buy a new one. So, you know, on Quest, now that it's using USB-C cables, that's no longer really an issue and that it's not a proprietary cable. But with Index, there's still a lot of proprietary stuff here that needs to be supported.
0: Yeah, Green Gamer making the comment here that OSVR two by Razer wanted to be this and more. I think that's an interesting observation. Looking back at the history at that open source headset project that was backed by Razer and kind of just died, disappeared. I mean, you can still, I'm sure, put together something that's based on that design, but you're not going to get many experiences running on it, right, Heeny?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those really difficult areas where this isn't something that you can really do as a practical. You know way to experience vr but if you are someone who is heavily involved in hardware modding and you just want to do it for fun it's nice to know that theoretically maybe this could lead to that and osvr kind of had a i think it was a little bit too ambitious in thinking that people would really want to buy and use their headsets like this on mass whereas it's really more of something that's just going to be a hobby project for a few very kind of involved individuals
0: and I'm seeing uh, Guy Godin out there in our comments. I saw him tweet a little while ago about the next subject that we're going to talk about. And is there any comments out there that you want to respond to here, Pini?
1: I think people are just kind of pointing out that Apple have actually very recently started to release their own repair kits for the likes of the iPhone, I believe, in response to U.S. regulatory requirements. But as a lot of people pointed out, those kits are so expensive and you know involve so many tools that it's almost cheaper and more convenient to just leave it into Apple. So it's it's almost like Apple kind of spitefully complying, but without really <laughs> making it a practical way. But you know, this is a much more appropriately priced solution. The the accessories here, the sorry, the parts here and the kits here don't seem to be unreasonable to me. Um, you know, $135 for the lens, the display and all the tools you need to repair it, including a repair guide, does not seem out of the question and you know things like this knob i think are like something like six or seven dollars and the power supplies are thirty dollars it's it's at a reasonable price that people can access and again it's such a big improvement over the previous situation of going buy another four hundred dollar five hundred dollar headset
0: let's talk about the mixed reality feature on quest two v40 is the latest version of the quest system software And I found this buried in my Guardian settings, the ability to turn on this new experimental room setup feature. And it looks almost identical to the software that we talked about, I think, last year sometime called Room Mapper. And it used these points that you could place around the room to map out all of your walls. And of course, this feature is what's going to unlock Facebook Metas mixed reality apps on Quest two, and this is their path forward to mixed reality on Cambria and beyond Heaney I, I was telling you right before we came in here if i'm I'm actually in my uh, bedroom right now and I'm using Quest here with my computer but yesterday when I filmed this, I uh, did it out in the living room and I had my cord running halfway across my house so that I could actually try to record this footage. But it's really, really, really bizarre right now. If I lean over here, I can see the outline of all of the shapes from my living room through the walls of my bedroom. It's a little bit like x-ray vision, being able to see the outline of that room over there, even though I can't actually see it with my, my own eyes. So really interesting that even though I'm in the other room, it's still remembering all that stuff over there
1: yeah again i do find this impressive and obviously it's going to be useful but i really am kind of impatient to get to the time where this is something that is automatic obviously you know that's not going to be something practical with quest 2's black and white sensors but i wonder how much of this process that is currently so manual on quest 2 is going to be either at launch or over time automatic with cambria or even if it's not automatic, kind of almost semi-automatic, where it suggests where your furniture might be and maybe you just slightly correct it manually so that it doesn't have to be perfect every time. But at least for the walls, I would I would really hope that with Cambria having that depth sensor, that that's not something you have to manually mark out anymore. Because it is kind of a bit of a pain if every time you have to mark it out when you're in a new room. And obviously we know that Quest 2 often forgets your guardian boundary, depending on if you kind of move furniture around or change the artwork on your wall And so I guess maybe that would be another factor where we wonder, you know, will the color cameras that are high resolution in Cambria make that something that happens less often? And, you know, is Quest 2 really just this kind of very, very basic dev kit for Mixed Reality?
0: Yeah, I do. I wonder how long we'll have Quest 2 on the market, right? Like how big of a platform is it going to be for meta as they go to successive generations of trying to drive down this price and reach larger audiences, right? They they dropped Quest off of the market, the original Quest, pretty rapidly. We're already seeing a lot of developers solely target Quest 2. And, you know, that was a headset that's not very old. And, of course, we've talked about this, Heaney, about them sort of leaving customers behind by canceling these platforms time and again. But we've heard them say that Quest 2 is going to be on the market for a long time. I wonder about this whole idea that like the depth sensor on Cambria and headsets going forward, like the tracking and the guardian rails that are there for you may be a lot more finely tuned. There may be less drift to all that with that additional information. But I wonder like how many people are going to need. These earlier, like, you know, only basic four black and white cameras, are people are still gonna be getting software updates for Quest 2 in like 2024, 2025 that improve some of the software functionality? Or are they gonna move on from this headset really rapidly? And are we gonna see that other kind of tracking that you're talking about where this stuff is like all automatic?
1: So I think when it comes to the virtual reality functionality, Quest 2 is probably likely to have a fairly long lifespan. You know, we know that there are still huge games in development for it, like the Assassin's Creed title, like Grand Theft Auto. But I think it is correct to say that when it comes to mixed reality, they probably are going to move on from it fairly quickly. And I don't think it's it's anything to do with kind of uh, not wanting to support it. I think there's just, as you say... There are limits to what you can do with those relatively low angular resolution black and white cameras. And it's not just the depth sensor on Cambria that's going to make a big difference. Uh, Cause I don't, I don't think it's, it's likely that we'll see the depth sensor arrive in Quest three simply because of the cost of something like that. But it's, it's the higher resolution. It's the fact that there is just much more detail to work with. And, and then in many cases, it may be the color as well. The fact that they can kind of leverage that to do some useful things. But yeah, it's interesting that. They even bothered to ship Mixed Reality on Quest 2 because it's something we didn't really think was going to happen it, you know, for the vast majority of its lifespan. It, it was only used for pass-through and for you know, when, you, when you stepped outside your Guardian boundary and for setting up Guardian. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether kind of Cambria marks the start of Quest 2 being left behind from a Mixed Reality perspective, but I doubt it will be for Virtual Reality.
0: One thing I'll note is with this system, I immediately walked into something. I forgot to mark out uh, a table near my door, and I uh, almost immediately uh, believed that I had marked off everything, walked straight to my door, and and walked right into the table. And it was not within the first five minutes of using this mark out your room feature. So I don't know how user-friendly that's going to be at the end of the day. If you do have to mark out every piece of furniture and it doesn't record the differences if it doesn't combine with the other systems. Like I was telling you, Heaney, there's I noticed there were three outlines when I first set this up. There were my guardian barrier, there was the Space Sense active sort of alert system. And then there was my room walls also being shown to me. And there were these three different layers of barriers, safety guardian safety systems in place for me. And it was a lot to take in, honestly. They have to come up with almost like one system, I would think, to account for all of these things, right? Because right now, it's a little hard to process all those things happening at once.
1: I couldn't agree more. What I would say my most anticipated kind of long-term feature for these headsets is a kind of next-generation Guardian that does bring all of these things together, where instead of this manual boundary you mark out, followed by this kind of edge detection things be a sense followed by this manual furniture it needs to all just be one unified system that detects geometry based on depth and you know when exactly the technology is going to catch up to make that possible we don't know but i think that will be one of the most significant additions just as significant as when we got guardian or when we went to standalone in the fact that as you said the flaw of this manual system is that every time you forget to mark something out or every time the system forgets about one of those things you marked out you just will lose faith in the system completely because you'll walk into something in real life. And when we get to the point where you just put the headset on and it knows where your walls are, we aren't even at the point yet where it knows where your, your floor is, which is quite surprising. It should. We really at this point should at least have the floor be detected, but we're still not even there. But when we get to the point where it knows where your walls are, it knows where your furniture are, even if it's just representing it as a very basic kind of outline of the depth, that's something that will kind of very much so change the usability of VR. and means that people in smaller spaces can use it without worrying so much. And it also means that kind of today where if you're in a small space, you often mark your guardian a little further than normal because you don't want to have this massive all the way to five meters in the air guardian boundary come up when there's only a little table in front of you. Even having that in three dimensions will make such a significant difference because then you can have, when you walk towards a table, you'll see it just below you, you'll see a Guardian boundary, but you'll still be able to aim your virtual gun over it and not have that kind of disrupt your gameplay, which is going to be so significant compared to what we have today.
0: Lots of interesting stuff there. I'm seeing them really shipping as quickly as they can. That's what I I got the feeling of finding this in my menu system was, I think there is probably an alignment of their Guardian systems that they're going to do there, but they've also got competition here to appear to be innovating, appear to be at the forefront of this technology and they have like a ship fast culture over there at meta they now have an open test of which of these three tracking systems is most successful in helping people room mapper i think was the one that was late last year and i was surprised that the guy that made room mapper got hired at meta i totally missed that the person that actually built that software that we talked about last year Is now working at Meta as a prototyper, so very interesting stuff. We ready to move on. Any comments you want to respond to? I was
1: was just going to say that, as far as I understand, that software did come out after this was announced at Connect, but before this was shipped. So it's interesting that it took a very long time for Meta to actually ship this out in in which time a lot of developers actually built their own custom solution. I saw there's definitely more than one. There was Room Mapper, but there were quite a few developers that built their own per app solution. But obviously the advantage here is that you set this up once in the system menu and then developers from the next SDK update can access these boundaries themselves so that they can use them in their titles. And that's the kind of real advantage of this.
0: Let's get into your findings in the Quest 2's LCD panel. So... Meta revealed the detailed specs for the first time of the panel breakdown, a lot of the tech behind it. And notably, the per-eye resolution differs from what is listed in Meta's published specifications. Heaney, get into the details here. What's what's the gap in information here?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting that... PC Gamer actually wrote this as a headline based off what I find, and they obviously cited us, but we didn't really make it the headline at the time, which is probably a mistake. We probably should have, because it is one of the most interesting kind of parts of this talk. We just titled our article, you know, here is the detailed specs of Quest 2 as revealed by Meta. But one of the things you'll notice, and this is something that people have obviously speculated on for a while, and that was obviously to some people obvious and perhaps even almost certain, but never directly confirmed, is that if you look here, the active area for each eye, as in the portion of of the single panel that Quest 2 uses that each lens can see, is smaller summed than the actual entire panel. It's only seeing a subsection of the panel. Now that's obvious because Quest 2 lets you adjust between three different Lens separation distances for your different interpupillary distances. So it couldn't somehow be using the entire panel yet at three different positions. But here is the first kind of direct confirmation we have where you can see the exact shape of the panel. And it's interesting that Meta confirmed that the panel is not rectangular. They actually have cut out the corners, but that's only to see of space because there's no point. It, those corners are never actually used by the lenses. But what this confirms is that the 1832 by 1920 resolution that Meta often cites as per eye, and it's on the official Meta store as the Quest 2's resolution is not actually correct because that would be that would be half of this panel. Half of this panel would be eighteen thirty-two by nineteen twenty. But it's less than half that each eye is seeing. So you know we don't have the exact figure, but it is a a maybe a hundred pixels less than that, maybe 50 to 100 pixels less on each axis. And so I think this is one of those things where if you're going to use a single panel, there is a disadvantage to that and that that is that is this disadvantage. There's an advantage in that it saves on cost. It's probably one of the reasons why Quest 2 can be sold for $299. In fact, it's definitely one of the reasons Quest 2 can be sold for $299. But I do think that Meta should be upfront about this and give the actual resolution. But again, the kind of upside there, if you want to kind of look at a silver lining, is that it means that people are slightly underestimating the rumored increase from Quest 2 to Cambria, because Cambria's 2160 by 2160 reported rumored resolution is for two panels where the the lenses will see almost the entirety of each panel, just like in the likes of Valve Index or HTC Vive or the original Rift or even the original Quest. So there actually should be a bigger increase there, but the Quest 2's resolution is slightly lower than what
0: people may expect based on the official specs. Very, very interesting difference there to consider. And yeah, Hini, I was sort of staring at this chart that you had in here where you're kind of pointing out that uh, there's all this space between the two active panels here. So this, you've got your uh, lenses that are going to be moving in front of each of these, right, into the three positions, basically. Yes. And because of the, the the shapes of those things, you really are never going to need anything in the corners. And you're losing a ton of potential pixel real estate in all of those spaces because of that design and other headsets aren't going to necessarily have that so we could be in for a bigger jump in perceived resolution in next gen headsets is a takeaway there so very very cool stuff any comments there that you want to respond to i
1: don't think this is something that you know it's not like it's a nefarious choice here it's just we are likely to see single panels remain in the low cost products. All of the Windows Mixed Reality headsets that were sold for a low price, some of them sometimes went as low as $200. Some even on you know crazy sales for a few hours went down to $150. They were all single panel as well. And PlayStation VR One is also a single panel. We have yet to see a very affordable headset that uses two panels that I can think of. So... It's just one of those things that if we want to see VR get cheaper and come to more people, there's going to be a slight disadvantage here like this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We started off with sort of the eye fix at individual panels right there. And the thing that's so great about the index is how finely tuned you can get all of the optics for every individual fitting. So you can kind of finely tune everything there. But there are so many face shapes out there that we're still fitting our faces into. Devices aren't really customized for us in meaningful ways. It's going to be a big step to both hit that low price while also figuring out how do we, how do we serve customized devices for the face shapes out there. Location-based VR company Zero Latency is replacing their backpack PCs by streaming to Vive Focus 3.0. Keeney, that's a big deal to see this step being taken. Of course, lots of people, I think, have tried zero latency over the last few years in various locations. They've had a pretty broad rollout compared to The Void. Lots of people are familiar with The Void. Zero latency had quite a lot of locations right before COVID. It's hard to track people over very large distances and make that super comfortable. And you had to put on a backpack. You had to hold this gone and they changed, I think, over their lifespan to using Windows Mixed Reality tracking. And then now, most recently, we're seeing them move to uh, this remote solution. And we have Guy Godin in our comments, the creator of Virtual Desktop. I'd be curious if he has any interesting thoughts on this setup. Heaney, do you think this is going to be a good experience fundamentally? And do you think it's going to be better or worse than maybe their previous setups?
1: Well, it's better in the sense that you don't have to wear a backpack anymore. That's it's quite a big change in that, you know, if you're trying to get people to come in and really want to do this repeatedly, the kind of struggle of having to put on a headset, then headphones, then this rifle, and then a backpack, it's quite a lot of, it's quite encumbering compared to what they have now, which is you just put on the headset and the headphones. And obviously there's no wire anymore going back to that backpack. You're kind of completely free to move your head. You're not feeling that tug. It's just one of those ways that they can make it more accessible. It's not really saving on cost, or at least not much, because you still have a PC rendering this. They're not doing standalone. It's just that they're streaming from a PC that's you know, in the back room or somewhere else on site via Wi-Fi. And actually, interestingly, via Wi-Fi 6E, the new six gigahertz band of Wi-Fi, which they say they're using so that they can get the kind of highest uh, Fidelity resolution they say they're streaming at the full 5k resolution of ViFocus 3 so this is ju- arguably not as big as a, of a step as when they moved from using that external tracking system where they had to have these kind of dozens of cameras over the top of the whole play space and then have kind of big awkward white balls all over the hardware but you know they they if they solved that by going to inside out tracking but now they have this kind of new solution where you don't need the backpacks at all i think the next step obviously in location based vr if they want to really bring the ticket price down is to do it fully standalone obviously that you know you're still going to want to have the highest fidelity experiences running f- streamed from a pc but if they could do it where it's entirely running on the headsets entirely standalone the ticket price could come down a lot which is what i've always said on this show is still the biggest issue with location based vr i don't think it's yet Down to the ticket price that makes it a mass market experience, like paintballing or like other experiences that people kind of go to frequently, mini golf or whatever. And I think that the the cost of those PCs is really, in many ways, what's driving that price to be still too high. Though obviously, then you have the issue that it's going to be a lot more cartoony graphics. But again, I I don't think that's what makes this super appealing. I don't think it's the graphical fidelity. I think it's the fact you have this really large area and that you're in the same play space with your friends that makes it's the real core appeal of this
0: it's fascinating and i think you were away the week that i was talking this with about this with kyle but the meta store obviously opened up and they're giving demos for free now in order to sell headsets and that's such a different kind of economic proposition compared to all of these pre-covid locations we had where you're spending anywhere from 10 to 50 dollars, depending on the sort of arrangement you want and how many people you want going through an experience and I think it's sandbox VR. They had fans set up, really high power fans set up next to the play space. And so like when you're doing an away mission in Star Trek and teleporting down to a planet, beaming in down to a planet, you feel the cold winds blow of this alien planet on you. And then, of course, over at The Void, they've had Ghostbusters over the years where they actually do marshmallow burning smells. So you smell the roasted marshmallows when you have to deal with the marshmallow man. And then haptic vests, and right? There's all these things you can do at location-based VR experiences you can't do at home. But you're absolutely right, Heaney. I don't understand, where does that get economical, right? Where you really want to go to a location with four of your friends or five of your friends and do like a location-based laser tag or paintball, where it's better to have a physical environment to hide behind and prop your back up against, Where are the economics of actually how many people you get in through the door? I'm still not getting the sense that people are really excited to get back to location-based VR.
1: Yeah, it will be interesting to see how they handle that in the future. Obviously, we've both speculated that maybe in the very, very long term, when VR becomes the kind of thing that's in every home, this might become a bring-your-own-device-style situation where You kind of come in and you you run their software by scanning a QR code at the door, but you're still using your own device so that the cost can be significantly lower. But obviously, as you say, there's always going to be a space for dedicated hardware that's better than what you can get at home. It's just a question of which markets and which locations are people actually going to be willing to pay that kind of money.
0: Chris Richardson making the joke that he liked the backpack when using the Stormtroopers experience because it added to the immersion. Obviously, the void had all those Star Wars experiences, and yeah, that definitely added to the experience and it worked so well for Ghostbusters too because they wear the backpacks as Ghostbusters. yeah, there's
1: definitely situations that make sense though again, there's I think there's just so many random issues with the backpack, you know, including the fact that you know the staff are gonna have to charge every every one individual. So you know that that creates some downtime in terms of bringing people in versus these computers that are obviously just wired to the wall, and you know if you're charging the controller and the headset and the headphones in the backpack, it does just get to this point where it gets a lot more difficult to scale this up to be a kind of viable global business.
0: Yeah, I think like every every additional piece of hardware that you're required to put on the person or even involved in the demo at all is just a failure point, right? My last time at the void right? It was tragic. It broke down, right? I was in the middle of this Chumanji experience and everyone was on these platforms and we were virtually separated. So it seemed like everyone was really far distant and there's this big monster fighting us and it just stayed in this loop. It never progressed to whatever thing we were supposed to do. And so this highly, uh, climatic moment of this experience turned into like just the worst most boring thing and you're standing there waiting for something to happen and then they finally had to come over and remove the headsets from us and we walked out of this dark stage sadly out of the void and you know the void is dead now and it's so sad that that's like the last location-based vr experience that i don't know like most people have had. The Void was in very high traffic locations like downtown Disney, where a lot of people got introduced to VR for the first time. It's not the same thing to go in to 15 minutes of Beat Saber as it is to have an experience that really goes after all your senses the way some of those other experiences did.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I guess the last thing I'd say on this is, I wonder how long it'll take until a lot of these locations are obviously very central in cities where they probably have a very high speed internet connection and you know, these are businesses so they can get a, a, a lease line, a fixed line where they can get, you know, a gigabit or beyond. I wonder how close we are to the point where they don't even need the PCs on site, where this could be streamed from the cloud and the same kind of technology that Pluto sphere uses. And in that case, you could see a quite a significant reduction in the cost of setting up these sites without actually decreasing the quality of the experience. but. Obviously, this is a stepping stone to there where you know they're streaming from the PCs that are still on site.
0: And Quentin making the comment that with malls in the United States dying, I think these kinds of amusement park experiences are going to be their only chance of success. I hadn't really considered the idea that malls themselves could rope off large segments of the stores that are just empty storefronts now and turn them into little amusement parks. It's an interesting idea. That's obviously where a lot of VR headsets are already set up in various little you know, $10 uh, or $5 for a few-minute trial areas. Well, let's talk about the Qualcomm reference design. Qualcomm showed a new reference design for AR glasses with the XR2 chipset driving a wireless connection to a nearby phone, PC, or processing puck. Heaney, do you think cutting that wire does anything to make this more uh, consumer-friendly?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Because if you look at the current era of AR glasses, you know, you can, like I've said before, you you can actually buy AR glasses if you want the Nreal light, but they're completely tethered to your phone. And that is um, a lot more inconvenient than people may assume it is in the sense that you're draining your phone's battery directly to power it. You know, it doesn't even have its own built-in battery. You are having to keep your phone at this kind of awkward angle where it's the cables not in an inconvenient position so yeah we, we do see this technology step here where we go from a glasses that are have almost no computing themselves that are essentially just a dumb display that's feeding back very basic tracking info to glasses that now have the same kind of onboard processing that we see in quest 2 though obviously in this form factor at likely a lot lower clock speeds and that are working together with the phone and I suspect that the next evolution we'll see, in maybe you know a year or two years or three years or whatever, is that this tether, you know, even wirelessly goes completely, and we start to see truly standalone glasses form factor. Because what we have here is something that is kind of potentially capable of that, but what they're using this processing power for is just to do this very low latency streaming, where the headset is obviously the glasses sorry are obviously handling the tracking fully themselves, but the content itself is coming. From your smartphone simply because of the limitations of having a battery and something like this that isn't going to just be drained in 30 minutes in the case of for example snapchats standalone ar glasses
0: and to be clear as is true of all see-through ar glasses at this point this had a abysmal field of view 40 degrees i think is what they said diagonal that's going to be a, a kind of a window into augmented content wherever you look and not the 70 plus that we want to see for the feeling of presence and obviously not the 100 plus that we're seeing out of current generation consumer VR that gives us a really uh, compelling reason to get into a headset. So uh, yeah, they're going to have to do a lot. This reference design, of course, a manufacturer out there could do whatever they want to this device, add their their own components and modify this to Their heart's content, but at the end of the day, who is going to do that is the real question. With the tether still being required there, I don't know if a lot of people are taking them up on that. The other thing I noticed is this is the first time I actually saw this marketing used. They might have used it previously, but it's the first time I actually noticed it. But they actually put up here XR2 Gen 1 on the marketing material, and that of course means they're going to be leading to XR2 Gen 2 at some point and we know cambria is coming we don't know we haven't heard too much about the specific chipset that's going to be used in it you what do you think we're going to see out of like cambria is it going to be just the xr2 again is it going to be different are we going to get to gen 2 i tried to put this question to qualcomm and they were very dodgy on it just you know we're going to try to pick the right time to find the next boost in performance, was me paraphrasing what they said. But uh, yeah, there's, there's when are we gonna see sort of real uh, next generation processing power in standalone?
1: It's a great question because what really does drive what is possible in these standalone devices is that processor. We haven't heard any rumors that suggest that there is an XR2 Gen 2 coming this year. I feel like given that the rumors that are out there suggest that Cambria will launch in September, we would probably have heard something about a new processor by now. The rumors that we have heard and the evidence that was found in a shipping document suggests that Cambria will just use a better cooling fan, in fact, two cooling fans, to have a higher clock rate on the same processor. Because Quest 2 actually has the the CPU in the XR2 underclocked and quite heavily underclocked. So you can actually get better performance out of the same chip by using a, a better cooling solution, two cooling fans. And the other rumor we've heard is that it actually uses double the RAM. So it's using the same... SoC but with double the RAM and a higher clock speed which means that even without being a newer chip you could get significantly better performance. I think what we're probably likely to see Gen 2 come ar- around for is Quest 3 because that seems like that is when you can actually deliver a better experience. It would be I would be incredibly surprised if Quest 3 comes out next year with the same XR2 Gen 1 processor. That wouldn't make any sense from a strategic perspective in terms of wanting to increase what's possible from the device at the same cost in terms of trying to deliver higher fidelity games. And, you know, we obviously saw that jump from Quest 1 to Quest 2 was equivalent to about three generations. And if Quest 2, if Quest 3 does launch next year, like some of the rumors suggest, then that would be again, kind of three years time of advancements to go in. And that's when you really start to see the significant improvements like that we saw from Quest 1 to Quest Two so that's when that would start to make sense to me but just to come back on these ar glasses i think it was it's a great uh, sort of point to point out as you said that yes the these are still incredibly primitive devices compared to the ar device the ar glasses that people are hoping for in the future the ar glasses that people talk about in the kind of science fiction sense these still have an incredibly limited field of view and an incredibly limited ability to do things like deliver opaque images in even bright light never mind a, a bright sunny day so This is still something where the last time we saw reference design from Qualcomm with the XR1, there are no consumer products that are actually based on that, as far as I know. Maybe there are in China, but there's none in the West. And quite a few times we've seen this for VR and AR, where Qualcomm comes out swinging and singing about their latest, greatest reference design and tells you they have five or 50 manufacturers. And it ends up that it's really the vast majority of those are just enterprise companies that are making a very specific product for a very specific niche. And you get, you know, Meta and Pico are the only Meta, Pico, and HTC are the only people who ever actually build a real product out of it. So I'm I'm very interested to see who, if anyone, is going to build a product out of this. And given this phone link is required, it's going to it's, you know, it's likely that you would need to see adoption from the likes of Samsung or Google to actually make this a reality in the sense that you're going to need quite integration, quite heavy hardware and software integration with the smartphone itself to deliver a, a truly compelling experience here even with nreal which is powered by that tether and essentially works as a you know display port out that's still only supported a very specific subset of phones on a very specific few carriers it's not something that you know if you just have your phone that you already have that it's likely to support so that is kind of a huge disadvantage of the android ecosystem having glasses like this whereas you know if later in the decade as is rumored apple comes out with glasses they're going to be able to just push support to all of their iOS devices that are capable of running it.
0: Are we ready to talk about this last subject? Because I have a feeling it's going to be a large discussion.
1: Yeah, I think we can move on to it. It's, as you said, is a pretty huge discussion. We saw a report more detailed than anything we've seen in quite a while for any unannounced product.
0: Apple is ramping up development for its operating system for launch in 2023. That's coming from a Bloomberg report. But then there's also this report from the Information That really dives into this decision a couple of years ago for Apple to focus on one type of headset versus another type of headset. And this report reveals a feature that hasn't really been detailed previously that's supposed to be in this new headset. Heaney, why don't you walk us through what is in this report? And as always, leave us questions and comments and we'll try to get to them as we can. So yeah, this
1: report is, the topic is about why Apple's headset has been so delayed because reports over the years suggest that this thing has been in development for quite a long time and that based on the original plans, it really should have shipped by now. And it all seems to come down to, in many ways, one key decision that was made in 2019 where Apple's technology development group, TDG, is the group within Apple that is building these AR and VR products. And they originally built a powerful hub that's essentially like a, a consoleized PC that would wirelessly stream high-fidelity VR to a lightweight headset that was just the thin client. It was not doing the heavy processing on board other than the tracking itself. And the problem is that apparently Johnny Ive, Apple's former chief design officer, decided that this could not happen he decided that he did not want a product that required you to plug this kind of required base station into the wall to be used he wanted a product that was entirely standalone like the quest 2 and the problem was that this group within apple had already started to build this high fidelity device and they'd already started to build software around that including photorealistic avatars so when you include the fact that they were trying to build a headset with this fidelity and having all of these different sensors on board that we'll talk about in a minute, they wanted to to deliver a premium device. What's apparently happened in the past few years is that the challenge of shipping all of these features and specs in a device of this, that is standalone has just made the project become a nightmare of engineering challenges. So, One of the big issues is that there are apparently 12 sensors on this device when you include the eye tracking, positional tracking, pass-through, face tracking, and all of the other cameras on board. And Apple apparently had a buzzer codenamed Bora that would be able to handle this because the M2 chip, the kind of sequel to the M1 chip, isn't able to itself handle all of this at once while also processing the you know virtual reality and augmented reality environments. But apparently, there w- there's an issue where in this BORA chip talking to the M2 chip, there is slightly too much latency. And when it's dealing with sensors for things like pass-through, for things like hand tracking, for things like positional tracking, that little bit of latency is just unacceptable because in VR, latency on tracking is going to cause sickness. So apparently, they then had to put a third chip into this device, which is known as a kind of fast conduit chip that would essentially use a special form of compression to be able to move this data between the chips faster. And apparently that's something that they're still working on, but hasn't fully solved the issue. Then Ian just alluded to the fact that there was a previously unannounced feature revealed in this report. And that feature is that apparently the front of this device is actually a display. that passes through the wearer's eye and upper facial expressions so that people in the room can see you even when you have this on and apparently this is something that apple executives including johnny ive were very insistent on because they didn't like this idea that you would be isolated from other people in the room and that's something we've seen actually in a, in a research example from meta we talked about it on this show a few months ago but at the time, we were talking about this is something that might happen you know, later in the decade or quite a while down the line. The idea that this is going to be shipped and a product coming out as early as next year is, is astonishing. But apparently, trying to do this has meant that where they position their sensors, these this big array of sensors to do all this impressive high-resolution pass-through and hand tracking and all this, has become... A lot more difficult in that when you have a big display on the front, there's very few convenient places to put those sensors. And apparently because they're so awkwardly positioned, it's made developing algorithms to correct the pass-through in terms of the scale and the correct distortion parameters a lot more difficult. Finally, the Johnny Ive is apparently still heavily involved in this project, despite not being still officially at Apple. He, he still is known to have a consulting position at Apple. And so apparently, again, this is according to this report, <laughs> apparently employees have to actually travel all the way out to his San Francisco home to to discuss changes. And one of those major changes is that originally Apple apparently wanted to put the battery in the strap itself, which I've started to object to because of the size of the battery needed to deliver a long battery life experience with all of this impressive processing hardware and cameras. So I've apparently is preferring a design that uses a tethered battery in the same sense that magically has a tethered puck that you attach to your waist. So it does seem like this project has become a bit of a uh, I don't know what the the correct word here is to say <laughs> is a bit of a cluster <laughs> strike in that <laughs> Apple is not exactly sure what they want to ship and that they've gone back and forth so many times between the, what they truly care about for this product that they're trying to put together a solution that if they can deliver on it, this is going to be the most impressive headset we've seen so far. It will be you know, slimmer and lighter than Quest and yet twice as powerful and allow for much higher fidelity experiences and potentially with Apple's, devices like, uh, if it supports apps for Apple's devices like iOS, a lot more useful. But Bloomberg reported earlier this year that the reason that's delaying this product, the core reason, is these issues behind the cameras and behind the overheating in trying to put a powerful chip in this device. So whether how much of this report is true, we don't know. How much of these solutions are really problems or whether there's something that Apple can sort out, we don't know. But it does not sound like this project has gone smoothly
0: or to plan. We had a lot of debate about this internally, discussing sort of the way we talk about this particular bit of news because Heaney and I pay very close attention to the sourcing that these reports kind of put out to the world. And this most recent report is all driven from people familiar with the matter type, right? So there are anonymous sources not named. And that can range from people who are still at the company to people who have moved on to other organizations, perhaps years removed from the actual most recent decisions that are leading to design. Heaney, you and I have both sort of read a lot of the literature on the recent history of tech design. And I don't know, I remember reading stories, uh, I don't know how true they are, but like stories of Steve Jobs and others at Apple keeping various versions of devices at hand to see which one is the right fit, right? Like, I think there were various sizes of either iPads or iPhones at one time, and they had to kind of go and trial them out and see which one feels right over time. I would expect the exact same thing to happen when it comes to VR headset design at the very highest levels, right? Where I would imagine that people like Andrew Bosworth and Mark Zuckerberg would probably have multiple options available to them that they could go with for next generation headsets up to a given point, right? And so we could have various designs all over the spectrum until that final decision gets made about which hardware to actually focus on. And I would imagine the exact same thing is happening over there at Apple. So it's hard for me, like this product hasn't even been announced, it hasn't been confirmed, but people are looking at this news and thinking, this thing is almost doomed from the start, right? It's kind of the narrative that some people are kind of pushing. And I think it's way, way, way too early to have any kind of verdict about how mismanaged this product is before we've actually seen that first actual user interaction with it.
1: Yeah, I think when it comes to the engineering perspective, you know, it's difficult to know what, how how many of these issues are just the classic issues involved in developing a completely novel product category and how many of these are really like kind of mismanagement and misdirection. There was one of the quotes from this report where one of those people who had worked on the project claimed that this was kind of a problem of over-engineering and per foresight. But again, that could be the kind of disgruntled employee. But what I have seen a lot of commentary from is the part of this report that said that one of the criticisms of these past employees is that there's a lack of focus of gaming for this device. Apparently, gaming is almost never mentioned in internal presentations. Apparently, there are not going to be gaming-like controllers like you see with Oculus Touch. There's just going to be hand tracking and these kind of finger ring devices that are kind of more just for basic haptics. And But again, there's apparently not going to be anything like controllers or xbox controllers or you know the playstation controllers which means this device is going to be solely judged on what it can do from media social and productivity which in many ways means it's not going to compete with quest it's going to compete with cambria and you know we've seen in the past month and we talked about it on this show mark zuckerberg has said that his intention for cambria is that it or its successors can start to replace your chromebook and then your laptop so This is going to be maybe the device that Apple pitches as replacing your Mac, but a lot of people are kind of criticizing that from the industry and saying that, you know, right now what works and what consumers actually want to buy in VR, in many cases, is games. And if Apple is going to completely turn its back on that, in many ways, from some market perspectives, it's not going to be as successful as some people would hope. But again, if the rumors of this thing being between two and three thousand dollars are correct, and you know, this article reports that Apple has in the past year assigned one of its executives to try and reduce the bill of materials and use cheaper materials and, and bring that cost down. But if it is in that two to three thousand range, it's not really a concern anyway, because the only people who will be buying it are those kind of creatives and professionals that are the type of people who buy Macs. And as I've, I've said before in this show, I really do think that this thing is not an extension of the iPhone and iPad business. It's an extension of the Mac business. I, mm. do, I wonder if the pitch for this product is going to be a MacBook on your face, a MacBook with uh, infinite monitors that you can kind of have this customizable workspace and work in mixed reality and kind of maybe do some play in mixed reality, but mostly with a focus in the initial stages, at least on creativity and productivity.
0: We spent the beginning of the show talking about that sort of weird shipping schedule that Meta is on to ship three different versions of safety systems, computer vision-based safety systems for your headset. That's the type of thing I would expect Apple to have, a system-level layer that is extremely intelligent and is there from the very outset not built out over successive years and then there's all the other kind of system level software that we've talked about time and again that because apple controls so much of the hardware they could have some really impressive services extending from all of their devices right like we talk about there not being a controller but the idea where you can look at a keyboard and have it recognized and then go through the pairing step of pairing it while you're in the headset. But like, you know, locking that object to your headset or associating with your headset is something you could do for game pads. You You could do that pairing process and have a device that is associated and it's not even built into the box. But, you know, that's a far off request compared to just the fundamental system software that know, why am I going to put this device on and what services am I going to get out of it? Like, uh, are they going to have a version of Supernatural uh, or Beat Saber that is just as compelling? Or is it completely different use cases? Like, it's really hard to understand that fundamental core software that's going to, going to ship this. We know that they've probably been focusing on it harder than, than Meta has so far.
1: Yeah, I, I just don't think you can really have a, a Beat Saber, at least not a full body Beat Saber, without controllers. There, there, it does limit the kind of content that can come to this thing. Yes, you can imagine, as we saw from one of Push Matrix's uh, prototypes, that you could kind of have a finger Beat Saber where you're going like this to slash the <laughs> box on a much smaller scale in front of you. That's something that we really could see come from a headset like this. And that could be the kind of content that becomes compelling when you can put it in your own space on a table in front of you. But it's not going to be as embodied. As something like Quest, 2 because there's a difference between having you know a real heft of controllers in your hand and and moving around a room like this versus kind of just swinging your hands around in free air. Those, Those really aren't the same thing. And yes, we've seen some kind of prototypes that use hand tracking. There's a fitness, one of the fitness apps, I can't remember which one, but where you kind of box like that. But yeah, there's it's going to be. I really doubt we'll see this focus on gaming. And you know that part of the report does. I don't see any reason to doubt that part of the report, but you know as we've always said on this show gaming is not going to be the main use case of these headsets forever it's the current most appropriate use case because it works best with the very limited technology of today but once you start to get this higher resolution and this more comfort and these better sensors and this high resolution mixed reality those other use cases like productivity like creativity like social where you're kind of having these virtual meetings start to become more compelling. And from what this report says, that those virtual meetings will be a big focus of this device. We already know that meta executives use Horizon workrooms to meet in many cases. I wonder if Apple executives will start to use this as well. There's There's been a recent kind of issue at Apple where uh, I think it was Ian Goodfellow, one of the kind of brightest machine learning minds in the world who was working at Apple quit because they were requiring people to come back into the office because, you know, they want this kind of in-person feeling that they can't get from FaceTime. Will this be part of Apple's actual employee strategy in future? We know, you know, as we've talked about in this show before, Meta has given every one of its employees a quest too. Will Apple give its remote employees one of these headsets so that they can remote in in an avatar based a virtual FaceTime in a around a, a desk so that it can retain this talent that in this new world are starting to demand that they be able to work remotely rather than be in an office? That could be a big part of this strategy. And this could, you know, if this if Cambria is working on the same thing, this could be one of these pitches for Apple that says rather than the current paradigm of executives flying all over the world in private jets to meet in physical spaces. Are these devices going to be pitched at these wealthy executives to be able to meet virtually?
0: Yeah. As I recall, there was a report that that showed like Apple bought out seats on every flight heading to China just in order to have those empty seats for anyone that needs to go at any time to solve an issue, right? The way you have to solve some of these issues is just get on a plane and go, That's a lot of waste and a lot of travel to just have empty seats on planes ready for you. That's a really, really interesting thing to think of Apple potentially seeing this as an enabler for their remote workforce. And that is fundamentally how I think Meta views what Cambria is going to offer and what their ultimate platform is, is this enabler of of remote work. I love the way you frame this, Heaney, because... I'm getting the sense here that a lot of people are very resistant to Meta and Facebook because of the history there, a lot of reservations about their data handling over the years. And I I perfectly understand that. But there is also this very real move of workers wanting to work wherever they, they live and wanting to move to remote work. And if workers are demanding to move to remote work, And some companies have management structures in place where it's like, I can't manage you unless I see you face-to-face once a day. There's going to be companies out there that are going to make that choice that you have to have these daily or weekly meetups physically in the office. And honestly, like they're going to lose the most valuable people to companies that embrace remote work first and really build their structures to embrace the idea that of the vast majority of the workforce can work from wherever they want. If Apple lands on the wrong side of that, if they're trying to force their workers to go back, that's going to change the narrative for a lot of people out there. Where it's like Meta let, lets me go wherever I want, and and Apple doesn't. Like that's going to win over a lot of hearts and minds of a lot of the tech leaders out there that really kind of shape perception. It could really make Meta a a much more well-loved company over time than Apple is.
1: Reportedly, it is already happening. You know, we've, like I said, Ian Goodfellow, the the inventor of of generative adversarial networks, recently resigned from Apple over this exact issue. And we heard earlier than the year, we we were reports from the Wall Street Journal and from Bloomberg saying that Apple was losing some of its AR and VR team to Meta. And all of these reports are coming out at the same time that we're hearing organization with an Apple, some for the first time in many cases, kind of almost union-like activity with an Apple of people organizing together to demand from the leadership that they be able to continue to work from home because they believe that, you know, they have the right to and that they're actually working more productively from home. And they kind of believe that this is just something that the managers want for the sake of old process over the actual sake of doing things the best way. So, it could be that this device is key to Apple retaining its own talent, ironically, just as much as it is for consumers, and that it's going to make remote collaboration more practical. I, I would love, Apple is, is great at developing this first party software in a way that Meta just is not. So I would love to see what is going to be Apple's equivalent of Horizon Workrooms. What? How do they bring together all of that integrate, ecosystem integration they have, where they have all of these existing calendar and notes and You know productivity apps from their you know their equivalent of keynote their keynote and their equivalent of Word I can't remember what you call it when they bring all of that together and they have this in a collaborative multi user environment and it integrates with all of your other Apple services and your iCloud and your devices we could start to see a really compelling remote work ecosystem from Apple that they dog food within their own company to keep this talent and then they offer to other companies in the same way that Meta is hoping to do with Cambria but I think it's likely to say that Apple could deliver much better on the software than the likes of Meta because you know Workrooms is really the the only the first good piece of VR software we actually saw from Meta. And everything so far is just a little bit kind of there's always some flaw and it doesn't really integrate into your CM workflows in the same way that Apple can do having that ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to see where this all lands. And as I kind of pointed out, I think Apple has been putting a lot of their services in place to get ready for this. Their FaceTime and iMessage communication platforms, I, I have every expectation that those will be fundamental to powering their headset platform. And the, the one thing I thought was interesting, wasn't there one little tidbit in these reports that Apple tried to demonstrate some of their avatars internally, and they were uh, right in the uncanny valley and made some people uncomfortable?
1: Yeah, reportedly, I think that was one of their photorealistic avatar attempts that apparently ended up yeah being so realistic that it was just uncanny, but without having kind of crossing over that barrier. That's one of the things that is very impressive from Meta's codec avatars in that they appear to just stay out of that uncanny valley. And if you look at, you know, for all of Apple's advantages and that they have this ecosystem, they have this, they have their own chips, which is their greatest advantage by far. They have this tight integration between hardware and software because, you know, they're not building on Android like Meta is. They have the entire operating system and the chips and the devices all built and designed by them. There is one advantage that Meta has over Apple that I've talked about before in that when it comes to machine learning meta's ai division is in a different league to apple's and that's something that we've known for a while it's one of the ways that google has differentiated itself from apple is that its ai team is also in a different league from apple's so when you see the likes of google assistant versus siri there's a significant difference there and is it possible that meta will be able to leverage that to deliver things like codec avatars which are codec avatars are not some sort of advanced rendering technique they are just multiple neural networks working together so it's possible that things like that may be a bit more difficult for apple and one of the really interesting parts of this report i noted was that apple was reportedly having issues as of a few years ago with actually just achieving things like positional tracking and uh, color pass through to the same quality as meta and there's a part of the report that says that the executives were hoping for them to deliver something that was actually significantly better than what meta does and that that's one of the real things that rockwell's group this technology development group have been struggling with so it's going to be interesting to see who what kind of product actually comes out better here is it the one that has the chip and the vertical integration and the ecosystem or is it the one that has to work with other other people's chips and other people's operating system but can infuse that with some of the most advanced machine learning in the world
0: the reason I laughed earlier in this show was when you were talking about Johnny Ive being in this consulting position. And obviously this is the person has been heralded as responsible for so many of Apple's design decisions. Johnny Ive was considered hand-in-hand with Steve Jobs going through a lot of the remaking of Apple. And it's funny to think of that identity and that person in this consulting role advising the path forward for AR and VR... Whereas over at Meta, you have John Carmack in the exact same sort of consulting role where they're not actually making the key decisions. But I think of John Carmack coming out at the MetaConnect event and speaking for an hour, just everything on his mind, including basically saying to Mark Zuckerberg, hey, you may lose thousands of jobs if you uh, try to build the metaverse right now and it's the wrong time. I'm completely paraphrasing what he said. I'm I'm contorting. Those aren't his words from that event. But that was the takeaway. That's the guidance going to Mark Zuckerberg is he's letting that person speak publicly and taking that in uh, himself. Whereas Johnny Ive is this very focused design thinker trying to think about what's the the best way this is going to fit into someone's life and it's it's almost like a battle which is the best guidance for this next generation of
1: computing that is a fascinating point actually that yeah apple has a legendary designer as a consultant for the, for their project, whereas Meta has a legendary engineer and which one will actually end up in the best overall product. You know, Johnny Ive is, is known for being behind some of the greatest designs at Apple, but he's also known for being behind some of the worst, including the butterfly keyboard that kind of almost ruined the reputation and did harm the sales of Apple's Mac division for years until they recently reversed and went back to using traditional keyboards. So, you know, Ive seems like one of those people who... Sometimes can come up with absolute brilliance that others around him can't see, but other times comes up with things that he won't step back from. And I many at Apple and maybe many outside Apple are going to be wondering: was cutting the idea of that external box, that 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 hub, was that one of those huge issues? Or will it turn out in the end that he was right and that going for a standalone product? was worth all of the engineering turmoil?
0: Obviously, timing is going to be the issue here, and that's where we're going to the core of this, right? If some level of mismanagement happened inside of Apple and the engineering and the software teams didn't line up on exactly what was going to be required here, it could be a failure that costs Apple dominance of the next platform of computing. And that's even some of the sourcing here is indicating there's people inside Apple who are making these pleas to management saying that's, that's what can happen. So if these issues cause Apple to be so far behind the, the release schedule of Meta, it could be a, a turning of the tide over time. Any comments out there that you want to respond to before we wrap this up, Yuni? Yeah, um, there's a funny comment from CakeButter
1: saying that uh, Carmack seems to be on the smallest of people Zuckerberg believes is as smart as himself. <laughs> Uh, Anakazi making an interesting point that Ive's major achievements were all when Jobs was there to constrain him versus his major failures and I guess the suggestion there is that Tim Cook doesn't work as well with Ive as Jobs did perhaps Jobs kind of balanced out some of the stranger instincts in Ive whereas uh, Cook is maybe more trusting him without bringing that same design kind of thought in that Jobs did because as people as many people have pointed out Tim Cook was the was the CEO of Apple he was the Logistics guy. He was never the designer or the engineer. So it's interesting that it's interesting to think of how those executives would pair together. One of the last bits of the report we didn't actually talk about, which is is fascinating to me, was that apparently Tim Cook actually rarely visits the team developing this headset, and they apparently have found it difficult to get engineering resources and staff assigned to the project compared to iPhone and iPad and Mac. And apparently, the one of the ways that they do. Convince executives is to warn them that Meta will own the space if they don't work. So they kind of almost try to use fear as the strategy to get support for this project, which I guess is something that they, you know, if that team can see how big VR and AR is going to be, then that's a that's a valid strategy. If Tim Cook can't see it, to say, look, Tim, either you give us these resources and let Apple contend here, or Mark Zuckerberg will own this space. And you know, as we know from the past year of all the ad and privacy. Debates, Apple and Facebook are the furthest thing from friends possible right now. They are as as much of an enemy as two giant corporations can be to each other.
0: I like Karim's comment saying that their non-English speaking friends saw them watching our show and said, aren't you too old to watch cartoons? You don't understand. <laughs> they don't understand out there, but you understand. Okay, that's what's important. You understand what you're watching. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we won't be cartoons and- forever, right, Heaney? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully so. Um, yeah, I'm not never not a fan of. These <laughs> I don't want to see myself. you in the Uncanny Valley, though. Right? Like, yeah, I don't want to see Uncanny Valley you before I see real you. I suppose. I think there's
1: a nice kind of sweet spot between baby face cartoons like these and Uncanny Valley. I, I do think we're going to get something that's a a little bit between those, especially with face tracking. Obviously, these avatars are designed around the limitation that there is no face or eye tracking, and that's something that. If the rumors are correct, by September, we will have.
0: That's it for our show this week. I want to thank you all for tuning in. We've had a lot of great comments this week. We'll see you in the future.
1: Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks again for all your comments. We will see you next week.